Christelle Rohat, <laughs> CEO and co-founder of Cody. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Joe. <laughs> Very excited. <laughs> well, we're, we're thrilled to have you here. Um, you know, I, I was thinking yesterday, uh, and this isn't going to surprise you, but um, that you've you've got a really um, interesting personality as a CEO, right? In that you've got the gregarious, lighthearted side of you that could delight a whole room of people at a networking event, but you've also got the serious, thoughtful um, side of you, which makes me think you'd be a, an amazing wartime type CEO. And uh, I was just wondering if you've heard that before, if uh, if that's resonating for you. It is resonating because I spent um, an internship in the military uh, when I was 19. Um, not that I was in a war or anything, but uh, it, it did kind of like help me gain that leadership skill. Amazing. Amazing. Um, well, why don't you tell us about Cody? Sure. So what we do is that we provide flexible offices as a service, uh, specifically dedic dedicated to fast-growing companies and uh, hybrid companies. Excellent. So, so how do you do that? Tell us about like the business model, about you know what kind of companies you're serving, what kind of what kind of space you offer. Yeah. So for our clients, they are typically post-Series A companies, um, growing pretty rapidly, uh, all the way to like enterprise clients that have like thousands of people, and they're looking for something a lot more flexible than the tenure lease in a big downtown HQ. Um, what we believe in is that like the future of the workplace is a lot more flexible, it's, a, it's easier, um, and it's also hybrid. Uh, when I say easier, it's important to note that because if you think about it, a lot of companies have outsourced many things like payroll to Gusto, payment to Stripe, um, data centers to AWS, but nobody has really outsourced the office yet, which is a crazy thing to think about because it's very tough <laughs> and painful as a process. Um, so what we do is that we make it like extremely easy and we do the end-to-end -end workplace management process for the company where they can find the right space, have the most flexible terms on the market, and then it's, it's turnkey, so it's ready to go. And whenever they're ready to get to the next phase of growth, like out outgrow their space or reduce or expand to a new city, they can do that very easily uh, with Cody. And how do you, how do you interact on the, on the backside, right? Because this is, this is coming, the context here is important where you've got commercial buildings, um, you know, especially after the pandemic, where it's very difficult for them to find uh, renters. A lot of companies are going uh, more, uh, more remote. And so how does it work on that side? Like what, how, how, do you, how do you kind of be in the middle of those two kinds of uh, parties? Yeah, well, it's a marketplace, right? Like, so we have the clients on one side, the companies who want flexibility and something easy and turnkey. Um, and we have the, the landlords on the other side, but we, we work also a lot with brokers. Um, and so for them, what matters is like minimizing vacancy times and uh, generating revenue. And we basically tell them, look, like the world has changed. Companies don't want to sign a tenure lease. And uh, there are tons of unutilized spaces out there across neighborhoods, not just downtown. And we believe they could have amazing tenants, um, which who typically come to us for the flexibility. And so uh, not only do we take care of the space for them, but also like we provide that uh, revenue generation. Mm. I see. And um, it, it, talk to me about the, um, like the location aspect of what you're doing, right? Because you said downtown, but also in neighborhoods. And like, how are, how are your customers thinking about going back into the office? Um, 
how do, how do they think about that, that, that hybrid between remote and everyone back at the office full time? We work with like a variety of companies who have very different workplace structures. So we adapt to kind of what their policy is. Uh, we ha- work with like fully remote companies, but some employees like are tired of being at home every day and they want something local. And so we create kind of a local hub for them. And to be key, that's more in the suburbs. Um, and then we have companies that are kind of office first and then in the middle, like more hybrid. And a lot of companies are more in the hybrid uh, world right now. Uh, what we do is that we also allow them to have a personal office where they can have the office just Mondays and Tuesdays. And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday is a different company. And so that never really was done in the past, like and existed. And I think it's kind of the, the future in terms of um, hybrid offices uh, where you actually only pay for the days that you use it. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't even realize that about your business. So. So Monday through Wednesday, company X could be using it. And then Thursday, Friday, company Y, the same space. Same space, exactly. And then ultimately, that's more revenue to the to the landlord. It's just a very new way of looking at tenancy. Um, but to answer your question around like the location, um, I've always been a big advocate of like non-downtown spaces because I believe like not a lot of people live downtown. And if you map out your employees, like typically they're gonna be, they're gonna be little pockets of employees in different parts of the city or the suburbs. And um, what we advocate for is to decentralize access to the office so that it's not a central HQ, but typically more like decentralized hubs. Right, right. And um, just just while we're on this topic, you uh, posted something on LinkedIn about about Elon that was uh, that was pretty controversial. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah, um, so Tesla recently, I mean, Elon Musk recently uh, announced as the CEO of Tesla that they're going to go back to the office for the minimum 40 hours <laughs> a week. Uh, he really emphasized the minimum. And to me, like, I, I can understand some companies that are, like, pushing hard towards, like, in-person time. Um, I see the value of in-person time, but... Um, it's a it's a very like black or white approach that I don't think will last very long. Like you see the backlash that happened at Apple um, and how like they were they had to stop like the the return to the office, uh, the forced one. But also like what didn't resonate with me is that it's just opposed to his mission. And as a CEO, I feel like it's it's. Uh, it tells a lot about the company culture, uh, you know. There's it, a hypocrisy there. Yeah, it's uh, it's just like the Tesla's mission is accelerating the transition to renewable energy or something like that. Like, so it's all about sustainability, right? But then you're forcing everyone, all your employees, to commute to I think it's like Palo Alto or something. The the HQ, like, so hours of commute, and maybe some people will fly in uh, or like move homes and things like that every single day when your mission is sustainability. Like carbon emissions created by commute times are like one of the top. Um, so I think it just makes no sense. And it's just uh, conflicting a ton with the, the actual mission. And I knew I know some people who worked at Tesla and like they really into the, the mission of the company. And I feel right. when you start acting against your mission, it's just uh, it will it will explode or implode. <laughs> <laughs> No, it, it was a, it was an interesting um, 
it was an interesting point about the, the hypocrisy and the, the mission there. Um, and and wh where do you think this is all going, right? So like, you know, 50 years from now, what do you think work is going to look like? Like, how's it going to be different than the way it is today? 30 years? We could say 50, we could say 50? 30, whatever you prefer. Because it's going to look different if it's 30 or 50. Okay, oh, <laughs> do you tell. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a, it's a good question. I don't think offices are going to disappear. I think, I hope that our neighborhoods will be a lot more mixed use, where we have a lot more uh, smaller workspaces available um, alongside residences. Uh, having that like model of the, the downtown, the fight eye, where it's like only offices, now that it's a lot more decentralized and people don't show up that much uh, in the office, it makes it makes doesn't make a lot of sense. Like they're going to always be really high vacancy rates if we keep doing that model. Um, so I'm a strong believer of like the decentralization, and I think the office will look that way. A lot more decentralized. People will have access to a local hub uh, with their local coworkers, um, and potentially the end of long-term leases. Um, that's uh, just a very archaic way of getting an office. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, what about what about WeWork? So a lot of people are going to look at what you're doing and say, hey, that's, you know, how is that different than WeWork? Well, there's a lot of differences. First, like we don't do co-working. So it's not like many companies sharing the same space. Um, it's only private offices uh, for like one team at a time. Uh, second, like WeWorks are typically only downtown. Besides New York City, you can see really like a density of the WeWorks of the world. And not just WeWork, but like all the computers that we work, all the co-working spaces, they cluster downtown because they want to maximize utilization of a big, big space, right? In a class A building downtown. What we do is quite the opposite. Like we have a lot of smaller buildings and smaller spaces uh, that are decentralized also downtown, but like across neighborhoods. So I would say, yeah, the fact that it's not co-working, the location, uh, the price, like the dollar per square footage for a private office at a WeWork is very high. Um, and then more for like the start startup community, like the business model is very different. Like we don't take long-term leases. Uh, it's a revenue share with the landlords. Oh, I see. Interesting. Um, and then can you talk a little bit about the origin of the company, right? And the, you know, the, the insight that led to you, you founding Cody. Yeah, it's a long story, but <laughs> <laughs> it actually like right now we're in Berkeley and it was born in Berkeley. Um, so I was doing a master's in city planning at UC Berkeley. And um, I think I got a cultural shock. Like I'm French. I, I had just arrived to the U.S. and studying U.S. cities and living in a U.S. city like reveal a lot of challenges that I was not experiencing in Europe. And um, one of them was the commute time, right, between the where you live and where you're supposed to work. And as we were brainstorming ideas with my classmates, all my classmates were Americans, and they were all like, hey, we should like build more roads, like build more parking, like. And to me, it, it didn't resonate that much because I always thought like the root cause is that the, the point B, because people go from like point A to point B, right? Like the point B is too far. Like, why can't we bring the point B closer to point A? Um, because that's what I'm used to. And um, that would be really solving the issue instead of like trying to build faster cars to get to point B, you see what I mean? Um, and so from there, like started kind of like the, the thesis around like um, unlocking access to underutilized spaces in our na residential neighborhoods so that 
we have a workspace closer to home. But explain that because in Europe, the, it's known to have better public transportation, but but I, I'm not aware of them having more decentralized kind of offices. Is that is that part of the, the culture? It's part of like the zoning. So basically oh. the way the US cities were zoned, you have massive residential zones and then tiny commercial zones. And everyone is commuting from the, the massive residential zone uh, to the, the commercial zone that's downtown. Uh, where all the offices are clustered. And that creates massive inefficiencies in terms of commute times, carbon emissions, um, and even like housing affordability to an extent as well. In Europe, like uh, zoning, it's more mixed use. So it's a bit more like New York. New York, like you have typically more a mix of like commercial spaces and residential spaces, like in the same block. And then all the blocks are like that. So yes, public transportation does play into the equation of like how close uh, the space is from your home. But like if you have zoning, uh, it changes everything. And so the, my, my hypothesis here was like, it's zoning that is causing the, the biggest issue. I can't really change public transportation. Um, I would need to work for like the bars or, <laughs> and then fight with everyone. Like it's, it's very tough, like the, the public sector here. Um, a lot of innovations come from the private sector. It's like, if I do something in the private sector, it will be around like mixed use. And so unlocking access to those small commercial spaces or residential spaces that are sitting empty in our neighborhoods and turning them into an office hub. Right. And and maybe um, tell us about how the, the the business started, the original business model, and, yeah. you know, and how it was uh, more focused on residential. And then maybe like just walk us through what happened during the pandemic and then how your your business model has evolved since then yeah well so initially wanting to bring the workspace closer to people's homes people were just going to coffee shops and they were packed in coffee shop trying to work it was a nightmare and i started to work from my friends homes and i really loved it and it was like well not everyone is my friend right so how can i like get access to all these other homes that I don't have access to because those are great spaces. And so initially it was very much like Airbnb meets WeWork where we would use our residential spaces, uh, people's homes, and they would come back at night, but during the day it would be kind of a co-working space. Um, and then the pandemic hit, uh, a lot more people worked from home. There were also like health concerns between the host and the, and the guests, um, the, the members uh, in terms of COVID. And so it was really a lot harder to pull off that model. Um, and so recently we realized, well, there are as well like some commercial spaces that are sitting empty in neighborhoods, uh, in the commercial corridors. And uh, those are typically small landlords and nobody talked to, like not the, the WeWorks and Co, like they will never talk to that small landlord because first it's not downtown and second it's not a class A building and third it's a, it's a small building, it's a small space. Um, but these are really nice spaces. And um, if we make them available to the local community, then we can actually decentralize access to workspaces as well. Um, so we pivoted towards like more commercial and retail spaces on the platform uh, back in like the fall uh, 2021. And uh, it worked out. Yeah, I, I loved uh, I loved in one of your investor update um, emails, you had you had this great chart of like, you know, Price of residential, uh, price of residential real estate, or, or convenience of conventional uh, residential real estate going down or going up, 
sorry, convenience going down, but then commercial going the other way. So it, it, it really artfully um, showed why you were kind of pivoting in that direction as commercial real estate became more available, lower priced, um, and residential had these other kinds of challenges. So I, I thought that made a lot of sense. Um, so, so, so a bit of context here is that um, when you and I met in, it was, it was three years ago now, it was over three years ago, I think. 2019, uh, yeah. I think, yeah. And um, we, you know, it was, it was when I was starting to get interested in remote work and, and you and I did a, a few uh, remote uh, conferences on remote work. And the thing I find interesting about the pandemic is that I feel like something happened where there were some companies that caught these pandemic tailwinds, right? And their business just kind of rocket shipped. And then some experienced challenges, right? And so that was pretty obvious, right? Early on in the pandemic. But what's more interesting to me right now is that now that we're sort of coming out of it, you're seeing this other bifurcation where some of the companies that were rocket shipping during the pandemic are now struggling. Right. And they didn't they didn't build a robust business that was built for the future. On the other side, what I love is that you, you guys faced headwinds. Right. But you strengthened the business, you know, made it more future proof. And now you're coming out of it um, in a much better position that, than a lot of other companies. I, I don't know. I was just thinking about that recently. I was just wondering what you what you thought about that. It was a, a roller coaster. <laughs> I will be very honest. I was very, very lucky to have an amazing team with me um, that I, I actually kind of put together at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, it's crazy because when they joined, it was really Airbnb meets WeWork. And now it's it's quite different, I, at least from like more, like the mission it remains pretty much the same, but more like the supply has, has drastically changed. And um, I was thinking about it a lot and it's just, uh, I don't think you can do that alone. Like you need like an amazing team uh, to support you, to believe in the in the in the vision, um, to be very nimble, um, to learn and iterate every day. And we've done that for two years, and um, I'm I'm proud of what we are now. Uh, but it's not just me; it's like the whole team. Yeah, and and I would say you know I think that's another one of your strengths is recruiting because I mean some of the folks I've met on your team from Lyft, from WeWork. Um, really impressive folks. Um, so where you are now, right? There's there's some news coming out soon that we can't share specifically, but you're um, you're getting ready to announce a new round based off of this um, this big lift you've had in in growth. Um, just I, I'm just curious, kind of on the back end of that pandemic, the the back end of that experience, what was it like fundraising? with this new story and, and what, what was that experience like for you? It's, there were pros and cons. Like the con is um, you have history, you have luggage, right? Like they know that the model was pretty different two years ago, the investors, and you have to kind of justify why it took so long to then pivot and make it work, right? Um, COVID is a great excuse <laughs> because then you're like, well, we struggle. And I think at the end of the day, what could be seen as like a, an issue or a challenge, like why didn't we figure this out like earlier, can also be seen as like a, a big strength is the resiliency. Like, as you said, like a lot of companies actually died during the pandemic um, or had something that worked very short term. 
Um, and the fact that the, the whole team stayed together, that we iterated and until like we found the product market fit uh, for the new world, not just for the pandemic, right? Um, I think that tells a lot about how strong uh, the company can be. And if you look at like great innovations like Airbnb or even we work to a certain extent, like they were initially in like the a recession uh, when they were born. So I think a lot of strong companies come out of those challenging times as like very, very strong. And hopefully that's us. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, congratulations on that and, and looking forward to being able to announce that. Um, why don't we, we turn the conversation back to you? Um, You've, you've talked a little bit about the context of, you know, having a European background, being in America, the context shifting. Um, what was it like growing up in, in, in France? And uh, how did like some of your early lessons or values kind of influence your career path or your values today? Yeah, um, I was always obsessed with how people work and live in our cities. And uh, initially I wanted to become an architect. I was just fascinated to see like those buildings where people would have their whole families and lives uh, for decades and that was built by someone. So I wanted to build that. Um, and then, you know, you're a kid, so like, you know, like five jobs and, <laughs> and then you grow up and then you <laughs> realize there's more jobs possible to do. Um, and I was, I was really good at math and science. So I actually went to an engineering school and did environmental engineering. So I became very passionate about like climate change and um, kind of married that with my passion for cities with like um, sustainable cities and like sustainable smart cities, sustainable neighborhoods, uh, green cities, like all that concept like is very strong in Europe. Um, but I felt like it was not the most had been done already, like cities kind of work already. Um, and like you can optimize the the last like one percent in terms of sustainability and things like that, but we really like debating over, um, you know, uh, bike lanes basically. Everyone knows bike lanes is great like, already in Europe, so I didn't feel like I would make a tremendous impact by staying there. Um, and I wanted to get out of my comfort zone and get out of engineering and do urban planning to really study the field. And so that's what led me to UC Berkeley. Um, and really diving into our urban planning. But yeah, it was heavily influenced by my childhood as an only child, I think, uh, trying to connect with my neighbors and uh, wanting to uh, uh, make neighborhoods more community driven. Mm. Did, you, did you have a neighborhood and a community that was, that was really uh, engaging and lively? No. No. No, and that's why. Okay. Like, oh, I, so you're solving your own problem. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was tough. Like, it was like I could, I think my brain functioned this way. I only see missed opportunities. Mm -hmm. Like, it would make me sad to see, like, I lived in a very a big kind of uh, building with a lot of residents, like uh, apartments. Um, I would, I had met my neighbors who were the same age than me after living there for like eight years. And that made me feel sad because like I don't have brothers and sisters and it could have been amazing to know those other kids in the building. And there was not, there's not like a tool to actually connect people. Um, and so in the very early days of like my engineering school, like I actually brainstormed an idea that was actually next door um, and maybe it already existed at the time. But, um, but yeah, that like, 
wanting to make the world a better place, or like to make our neighborhoods like a, a more engaging place um, that value people and connect them, like has always been really important for me. Not because I lived it, because I missed it. Oh, that's so interesting. So, so I, I my experience is uh, first part of my childhood was in the Bronx, New York, and then the second half was in Connecticut. So the Bronx was a lot more urban, right? Those tight row houses. Mm-hmm. Um, couldn't walk around your house, right? That kind of thing. It's all connected. But um, but as a kid, it was the dream because you walk outside and it's just kids everywhere playing in the street, playing on the sidewalks and people's driveways. You know, you're over at other people's houses all the time. And uh, and it was great. And then we we moved to Connecticut, which was a lot more kind of rural or uh, suburban. And it was it was like this dream. My parents always had this dream. We're going to move to a place like this, right, with better schools and things like that. But um, and, and I love the nature aspect of it. Don't don't get me wrong. I, I love that. But the big downside was your your the houses were so far apart that you really you didn't know your neighbors. Mm-hmm. If there didn't have happen to be a kid that was like within a couple miles, like you you didn't really have anyone to play with. I mean, I had brothers and whatnot, so it was. Uh, that was okay, and and eventually school helped with that, but um, but it is interesting, like the impact that your neighbors and your community can have on you, and you don't really you don't really pick your neighbors, right? That you just kind of show up in in a in an environment and and find out. Um, so it's, that's that's interesting. You're solving your own problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, did you always know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? No. Um... Actually, I considered working for the, 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 the public sector, for the government for a long time. Um, initially, I wanted to work for the, the French government, uh, but I wanted to do my master's at Berkeley. And they said, no, no, you need to come straight to the government. So I was like, OK, bye. <laughs> so I went to Berkeley. And then my goal initially here was to become a city planner right, for the city. But then just seeing how archaic uh, the zoning rules are and like at the end of the day, like a lot of city planners, they've they're there to enforce the law, right? And I um, don't really believe <laughs> in a lot of laws that were created like a long time ago. Um, and I really believe in like, when there's a status quo that deeply you feel doesn't make sense, like it has to be disrupted, it has to be broken. Um, and so that naturally kind of drove me into inter- entrepreneurship. And um, I remember initially, Cody was part of my thesis on circular economies with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And we had like a, a week long trip in London. And um, it was very, I was there with my professor from Berkeley. So it was very academic. And there were also some entrepreneurs. And I met an entrepreneur there who I explained like what passionate me, like what, what made me uh, passionate about the problem of like the uh, better utilization of assets in our cities and things like that. And and he told me, look, like you, um, you should just try it out. Like you're lucky you're a student still. I had a second year at Berkeley. It's like you have one year to do it and there's no impact if it doesn't work. So just try. And that really um, stuck with me. And I realized, yeah, he's right. Like Berkeley is an amazing entrepreneurial uh, community. Um, So I just changed all my classes after that trip and just went into kind of more business school and um, did like an accelerator program and um, that really made me do the jump to like entrepreneurship. 
Wow. And and did you take to it right away? Like, do you, do, you, do you describe yourself more as like a reluctant entrepreneur? Like, I have to solve this problem, so I have to be an entrepreneur? Or did you or did you kind of step into it and say like, wow, this feels really right? No, it felt right. Yeah. I've always been, yeah, in, in any kind of class project, I've always been the one running it <laughs> or like pushing people to like do things and like, um, I love pitching. I love like explaining the, the 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 ideas and the concept. Like, and then you felt right pretty pretty quickly. Uh, that is interesting. I, I I always had that sense about you that you enjoyed the pitch. Like a lot of entrepreneurs, that's like their least favorite part. But I feel like you you actually enjoy that. I enjoy talking about like the the, the vision and how it works, and I love getting the feedback from people because I feel like if I can have like just fifteen seconds of everyone's time. And everyone could give me like one point of feedback on like what I'm doing. Um, I could maybe save like years of pivots and and learnings. Um, and so yeah, I, I do love <laughs> talking about Cody and like hearing what people think about it and uh, what are what are their concerns. You know? What would you say the percentage of VCs that you pitch will actually give you good feedback versus none? That's a really good question. I don't think I get a lot of feedback from pitching investors, especially during a fundraise, because they're very cautious about what they say. Um, it's always like sounds positive until like it's a no, um, and very few give actually um, actual feedback. Um, so yeah, I would say it's mostly like either like VCs that you meet outside of fundraising. Uh, who will be a bit more straightforward about what they they really think? Uh, your customers, uh, your prospects, like people who could be using the service but are not using it, like these are the best uh, to talk to. Um, and then competitors, people who worked at competitors before. Like I've talked to a ton of people who worked at WeWork and Breather and uh, Spacious, and especially the company that that die. You know, like understanding why. Um, uh, that's why I get like the most valuable input. Mm, mm. Well, that's consistent with what I've what I've understood about VCs, and it's one of my my kind of pet peeves about the industry. Because when I was an entrepreneur, that's that's all I wanted. I just wanted feedback, right? Like, tell me your thoughts, tell me what your concerns are, what your questions are, um, and uh, so that's something I try to really. Um, emphasize and and try to give at least some feedback you know whenever I um, can't invest or, or decide not to invest in a company but um, so it's it's good to hear that that's still a problem that needs to be solved um, okay so want to ask you a little bit about your kind of personal philosophy um, so so first off what would you say your uh, if you had one or two what, what what's your superpower <laughs> that's a tough one um... I would say I multitask a lot um, in the sense of I actually fry from multitasking. Like I would not be happy specializing in one thing. Uh, and I think that's a superpower in my position, like being really enjoying design, really enjoying product, really enjoying sales, really enjoying talking uh, with you today, right? I really enjoying all these different parts. Like, uh, and sometimes even like, boring things like accounting. <laughs> so it's, um, I think thriving from like the diversity or the variety of, of tasks that you have in a given day is really important to be a happy person as a founder and CEO. Um, and that was my, probably my biggest superpower, I would say. Wow. 
Wow, that's that's amazing. That's a really great answer. Uh, and and I find it interesting too because that's what I tell people about VC because I, I talk to a lot of MBA students and, and younger folks who are interested in VC and that to me that's the fun part about being a VC is like getting to have your fingers in all these different functions but also ideas and whatnot. So, um, but I can definitely see how that would also you know be really helpful as a CEO. Um, do you want to hear what your co-founder Dave Schumann? believes is your superpower? Oh, wow, yes. <laughs> so, so he says, uh, Christelle's ability to listen to everyone in the room and absorb information and then make tough decisions. That's nice too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I absorb, I'm a kind of a sponge, yeah. Um, you know this is coming, but what, <laughs> what's one thing you believe that most people do not? I think they are, a couple. Um, one thing that a lot of people miss, I would say, is um, I believe that if you live abroad for a couple of years, if everyone could live abroad for a couple of years, a lot of amazing innovations would be born. Uh, and we're just missing out. Because that's kind of how Cody was born. It was a culture shock. And you, it's just like right in your face. When you live in a different country, it's a different culture, it's a different way of living. Um, you're out of your comfort zone big time. And then it's, it's, it strikes you what worked, bef like where you were living um, and vice versa, right? What didn't work and is working in that new country, right? Or that new area. Um, and I think like there's a kind of a misbelief that like people who travel or live somewhere else, like kind of like um, it's more for fun and things like that, but actually like, if anyone at Stanford and Berkeley could live a year abroad, like we would have a lot of amazing startups and companies being created uh, that are not being created because they are in their comfort zone. Wow, that is that is a brilliant observation. Um, and it makes sense too, historically, right? If you think about the development of, you know, the, the Silk Road between Asia and the Middle East and Europe and, and Africa and all of the the innovations that were passed and, and how that helped advance their civilizations. And, um, and I feel like that's, that's also something that a lot of Americans miss, right? Uh, is America, we, we've got this, you know, this ego, right, around um, uh, American exceptionalism. And then you've also got the, I mean, the, the, the other kind of benefit is that uh, the states are so big, right? So there's there's diversity within the states as well but um when when i lived in canada i it, it changed my perspective on a lot of different things as well um and it, it's like you like you said it's like you i'll give you an example so i i've always the one of the things that i realized after living in canada was how people think differently about uh, individual rights versus like the the, mm -hmm. the values of community, and I I never really thought too hard about that. But when you're living in it, you start to think, oh, like this is what this that this this area values, and um, I think I think what you're saying makes a ton of sense. You said you had a few. Does that mean you have <laughs> you have more? <laughs> Another one would be just uh, maybe that's less and common. Yeah, I think more people would believe in what I'm going to say now, but like the um, breaking the status quo. Uh, I think the status quo, a lot of the times, is not a social 
optimum, like it's not a, the optimal point for like the benefit of society or the community. Um, and if you see a way to make it better, like you should do it, you should break the status quo. Um, a lot of, you have two different type of, right, entrepreneurs or like people I'd say, like those who like believe that it's there for a reason. Um, but then there's the other part that are kind of more disruptors and I'm, I'm more in the second part where a lot of the times I'm like, this doesn't make sense. And yes, it's been done for like a hundred years like this, but it doesn't make sense. And um, uh, yeah, so status quo is I'm made for it to be broken. <laughs> do, you, do you feel like that's a, a personality trait or that's something you, that people can learn? Well, I think you can learn it by potentially, you know, living somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Because then you realize, because a lot of times people just don't realize it's a status quo because they, it's just a habit. Like they've grew that way in that society or that community and it's just the way it is, right? There's no reason to challenge something that seems completely normal. But once you leave somewhere else, like you experience something different, then you realize, oh, it could actually be done a lot better. Like I could like remove all those pain points. Um, and so, yeah, I think it can be learned. It's more about like experiencing different things. Mm. Got it. Make, makes a lot of sense. Um, if you were not building Cody, what would you be doing right now? Oh, I just want to build Cody. <laughs> <laughs> Um, professionally? Sure. Or, or not. <laughs> well, if I was not building Cody, what would I be doing? Uh, it's funny, I haven't thought about this in a long, long time. Um, I'll be working towards like sustainable cities for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what type of innovation. I'll probably be an entrepreneur my whole life. Um, so yeah, like an urban innovation for sustainability in our cities, I would say. Uh, yeah. Good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> um, is there a quote you think about a lot or you or you live by or, or maybe kind of a, a like a, a value you have? Um, yeah, I, I would say like, at least like in the professional sector, like, um, and that applies to personal life as well. It's just like no ego and don't take yourself too seriously. I think that's like very important uh, to keep reminding yourself of um, because as you you know hire people, like it puts you in a, in a position of uh, um, of having a really big impact on people's lives. And um, I always think about that. Like I have, we only twelve people right now, but like I have twelve people who have decided to spend every day working on um, something that came in my in my mind one day. And that's, um, it's very flattering, but it's also like a huge responsibility. And so I always like try to every day, like remind myself of like how much of a responsibility it is. And it's my responsibility to make sure that they are thriving and that everyone is kind of like, you know, uh, learning and having a great time, uh, at the company. So just like, um, reminding myself that, you know, it's not, as you grow a company and you become like, you have more and more people in your company and you serve more and more customers and more landlords and things like that. Just, I think it's important to like always remind yourself that you are serving them, not the other way around. And it's no ego. Um, it's about more like kind of what they've said. Like it's about kind of listening and always trying to do better. Um, 
Yeah, I'm not taking yourself too serious. What's the what's the 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 down? Uh, what in your experience is the downside of ego, and and how does that manifest in a negative way for whether for founders or otherwise? Yeah, I, I mentioned that because as you get into more and more found founders communities, like you run into a lot of people who think the world of themselves. And um, and that always made me feel very uncomfortable. Like I don't want to be associated with that type of mindset and culture. Um, and so that's like the, that's one of the most negative thing. Like if, um, yeah, it's like being, a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a politician, but like these are kind of the traits that you would see as negative for politicians, right? You would say, oh, they have a massive ego because they think they can run the world or they can run the country and things like that. And there are parallels to being a founder because you think you can change the world and you think you can hire a thousand people. And um, yeah, and so you, you will run into kind of these type of personalities that are very strong, but like um, have a ton of ego. And um, I just uh, want to make sure that like, I stay true to myself. I hear you. I mean, Silicon Valley and Bay Area, no shortage of egos. <laughs> um, absolutely. How has being a parent changed you? A ton. It's, um, I would recommend that to any founder because, yeah, because like your whole life revolves around your startup until you have a baby. Uh, because then you have a second baby, basically. Like you, any, anyone, I think, who founded a company like treats your company as like it's your little baby and uh, it's everything. And if it fails and it's the end of the world, like it's very tough uh, when you don't have something bigger. Um, but you know, raising a kid is like a, a lot bigger, uh, and um, and that helped me balance kind of my work with my personal life and have a lot more distance and perspective and I think make better decisions ultimately because they're a bit less emotional because I I, I have a second baby, you know, and that's, um, I think it's been very helpful. You can keep things in perspective better. Yeah. 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 That's so funny. I, I cause I, I totally agree. Um, cause I, I run into people all the time that say, Hey, I want to be an entrepreneur or I want to be a VC and, uh, but I also want to have kids, right? Or I already have kids, so I, and I can't do both because they're so mm -hmm. all-encompassing. And and, um, and interestingly, I, I felt found something very similar to you in that part of part of the challenge I think day to day for any of us, like professionally, is um, kind of detaching, right, from what's happening, and and um, especially when you know, you, things aren't going well one day, let's say. But what's great about kids is they don't care about any of that, right? They wanna play and they want your attention. And if you're not giving your full attention, they're gonna let you know. <laughs> so yeah. I actually find it's, it's um, like you, it's, it's additive. It's not subtractive. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's easy, as you said, like it's easy to think that it's gonna prevent your career from making progress uh, when you don't have kids. But then once you have them, then you realize, no, it's actually an enabler because they, first you're, much more, you, you're more productive. Like you have limited time in a day. You can't work until 2 a.m. So uh, you have to like be very deliberate about what you do. Uh, and second, yeah, as you said, like it, it puts it, puts everything in perspective. And I think you make more informed decisions and less emotional decisions. Um, uh, but yeah, like, and then it's, 
even within our own company, I think people like are afraid who don't have kids of, of having some because then it will take them out of work. But I think it's actually very healthy. What advice would you have for someone young in their career, uh, maybe or, or maybe in college, who's, who's thinking about getting into whether it's tech or sustainability or entrepreneurship? Um, what, what advice would you have for them? Well, it depends if they already have an idea or not. Like if they have an idea that they strongly feel, you know, they can spend 30 years of their life working on it, like they should pursue it. Um, that would be my advice is like, don't think about it three times and don't like look at LinkedIn and get a job and then do that on the side. It doesn't work. Like you have to be hundred percent in. Um, I think that would be my advice because I've met some friends who have kept a job and had that passion on the side. It's really hard to make it work because you, you just don't dedicate enough time and energy and a uh, startup is like more than hundred percent of your time. It's like 200% of your time. So I would recommend like, if you know already, your heart is like just like go all in especially if you're young like you don't have much to lose like you're gonna learn a ton and in one year you would have learned the equivalent of like five years in a in a company um if you don't know yet like what you want to do but you you know you want to kind of be an entrepreneur like you you enjoy that creativity and um variety of like responsibilities um i would say to I would recommend an accelerator program. Like I do think it's helpful or like some academic like um, challenges. I've done a ton of innovation challenges. Like at Berkeley, I, I did the, the big ideas challenge and that really helped me kind of like frame the idea into like an actual business plan and things like that. And like go through all the steps of iterations, but like having your, you know, your hand hold, uh, held uh, all the way through like creating a business. Um, and I do think like those type of programs or challenges are really good um, because then it helps you kind of understand what it takes to like turn an idea into a business. Absolutely. And I, I agree with you on the risk side of things. I, I think young people, they don't realize like how, how high their risk tolerance is right at that moment versus, you know, going, going into the future. Um, and I also love your point about the pace of learning, right? And how much faster you can learn if you're 100% focused on something creative, even if it doesn't work out. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's again like I'm. A, there's a lot of ego or fear into like failing, right? Because as you're young, you'll see your friends going to like maybe Google and Co. and or not even that, but like they will be promoted. Like you never get promoted when you're founder. Right. You never get like a positive word from anybody because like nobody is employing you. Um, so it's tougher. Um, there's higher risk. And even if you fail, like you, it's not a failure because, as you said, like you learned a ton. And it's really hard to see that when you see all your friends like checking the, the boxes. Um, but I completely agree. It's the right time to do it right after school. I, I really believe so. Um, because once you start a job, like it's it's a lot harder to get out. Yeah, I, I talk to folks pretty regularly um, who are in some of those big companies and have been box checking for mm -hmm. 10, 15 years. And then all of a sudden they realize, oh, wait a second, I want to do something more risky. And it's uh, so I couldn't agree with you more. 
Christelle, um, how can people find out more about Cody and uh, and and kind of follow your you know some of your brilliance? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, they can learn about Cody by just typing Cody.com in Google. Uh, I hope they use Google. <laughs> C-O-D-I. C-O-D-I, yeah, yep. C-O-D-I. And then uh, they, can follow, they can see me on LinkedIn. I post quite often. Um, if you're a startup founder um, and you need space, you know where to find me. Uh, we'll give you the best rates on the market and the most flexible terms. Uh, if you're a landlord and like you have vacancy, uh, come to us as well. Like the world has changed and we can give you great, great, great clients uh, and generate revenue. And if you're a sort of founder and you just want to have like advice or feedback, like I'm ha also happy to, to chat with you. Um, just like look, at, look me up on LinkedIn. Beautiful, beautiful. I think there might be some folks to take you up on that. So thank you so much, Christelle, for being on the podcast. It's thank lovely you. to have you. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Joe. All right.